all the leaves are brown and the skies are grey. And we're back for season two of Somewhere to Believe in, the podcast brought to you by Greenbelt Festival. So hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? I'm bored now. I'm bored of lockdown. I need to get out. How bored are you? What have you been driven to? Well, yesterday I spent, I would say, maybe about five hours learning a new card shuffle because that's <laughs> all I had in the house. That's all I could do. <laughs> finished my jumper, finished painting my bathroom. It was raining. There's nothing I can do anymore. <laughs> Apart from shuffle card. Did you master the, uh, did you get it down? Yeah, I'm getting there. I've got sores on my hands from it, so I've had to have a little break. But uh, I'm hoping to crack that one out at Christmas. So you'll be wearing your knitted jumper, (laughs) really impressing people with your shuffling and dealing skills at the table. What a crazy year 2020 has been. And how brilliant it is, is it that we were able to capture such a lot of it through these podcasts? Yeah, it feels like we're almost like war correspondents, doesn't it? Like reporting on, <laughs> <laughs> reporting from the front line on them, because the world is just as change. You know, there's so much change and turmoil uh, on a daily basis, not just a weekly basis, but day to day. And it feels like in these podcasts, we've we've had the chance to reflect on some of that. It's been it's been momentous. Yeah, and it's great that we will be able to look back and be able to listen to how things were going on a day-to-day basis and remember some of the things that we struggled with or how we were feeling in those moments. I think it's really important to remember that. Hopefully a year's time, we're going to feel quite different and the world might feel like a different place. I really hope it does. (laughs) I mean, it already feels like a different place to when we first started them. I mean, you know, when this pandemic first happened, it was such an unknown to everybody and what was going to happen and how the world was going to look and it is weird, isn't it? I remember our first ever interview that we did was with the uh, social geographer, Danny Dawling, and he was talking to us quite a lot about Brexit and empire. And here we are recording this episode. And the latest deadline has just been extended again. And the European Union and Great Britain have agreed to keep talking about the trade deal. And I thought we were getting Brexit done, though. Wasn't that the slogan? Well, I did hear there was an oven ready deal and it was going to be the simplest thing to sort ever but um seemingly it's quite tricky especially when you're in the middle of a global pandemic i guess maybe no one knows how to work the oven that could be it it might be one of those things where you think how do i how do i program the clock that's always the trickiest thing with an oven how do you set the clock are you looking forward to christmas paul i feel very very tired if i'm honest of this year and so Mm. i sort of want to have a little bit of a rest um, just a different rhythm because I've kept uh, because of different things I've just kept working this year and I just really feel like I want a bit of a different rhythm some space to read to think to walk those are the sort of things I'm hoping for at Christmas how about you I feel like we should swap lives a little bit because I've had way too much of that <laughs> I'm hoping to stop resting stop spending <laughs> having five hours to spend on a card shuffle and maybe <laughs> do a few more things <laughs> Oh. This is our final episode of Series 2. Really fitting that we get to speak to um, Rafif on the, in the lead up to Christmas, almost like you planned it, Paul. 
oh, well, you know, <laughs> occasionally I do have my moments. But yeah, Rafif is a Palestinian activist and poet who we've admired for, for very many years at Greenbelt. She's been to the festival only a couple of times. We really ought to have her back, I think. Um, talking with her just reminded us, didn't it, Catherine, about the times when we've had the opportunity to go to Palestine. Do you remember the first time you went? What what were the sort of things that struck you and stayed with you? I remember being very nervous about going because I know it's not the easiest trip to take um, and it's definitely not something I've experienced before. But I love Palestine. It's such a beautiful place. The people are lovely. The food is great. I've had such great experiences. The art and the culture is is breathtaking and just such a privilege to see that also just mind blowing the situation there seeing it and seeing the kind of occupation that people are living under how i felt seeing that isn't anything that anybody could prepare me for and you know the israel palestinian conflict is i don't think i understood it like you know you can learn about a lot of things but it is quite complicated um but when you go over there and you see it, it's very simple. I think seeing it does bring it down to the fact that people are being treated differently and people aren't being treated equally or given equal rights. And it's very, very stark, isn't it? It's very in your face. It's very in your face. Like you can... um Like the settlements are the one thing that really shocked me. You know, there's a very... There's a very visual difference between Israel and Palestine. There's a very visual difference between an Israeli road where you could go down if you are in an Israeli vehicle with an Israeli number plate and a Palestinian road. Like the Israeli road are they're modern, they're paved, they're big, they're flat. A Palestinian road is is not any of that. It's almost like a country road, like a dirt road. And when you have a look at the settlements that are popping up in various places in Palestine and the roads that are cutting through that you can't go down if you're Palestinian. It's correct. That's that's shocking. You know, we hear people using words like apartheid to describe the system and the occupation and what's happening on the ground. But and you think, well, that's a bit strong. Surely apartheid was only something that happened in in um, South Africa. But any system which um, separates people according to their race, ethnicity, and then structures the whole of society to keep those people apart and give them different access to different things and different rights, that is an apartheid system. And those roads that you describe, I think that even more than that, the wall is shocking. It has this horrible effect on you. But I think that I found the roads and the overall sort of takeover of the West Bank even more sinister in a way. But like you were saying at the top, Catherine, despite all that militarism and aggression and occupation, denial of rights, what you were reminded what you came away with was just that love of the place and the people and the culture and the food and I would have to say I was the same I I think my most fond memories 
of uh, my trips to Palestine have been just the hospitality that I've been offered wherever I've gone. Um, whether I'm sitting with a family in a house that has just been demolished by the Israeli Defence Force, which is something that regularly happens in the West Bank, or out in the desert with the Bedouin, or just off Manger Square in the middle of Bethlehem late one night um, being offered tea, uh, in the back of a shop there, I just think the hospitality and the warmth of the people is something that I I just absolutely love. Yeah. This is, yeah, this, it's a really weird um, combination, isn't it? I remember sitting in like a really lovely uh, wine bar in the middle of the day overlooking um, parts of Ramallah, parts of demolished Ramallah, but then parts of like really beautiful <laughs> Ramallah and hearing gunshots in the background and it was a day that they knew that the, the Palestinians knew that there would be some trouble because there'd been a confrontation with an Israeli soldier at one of the checkpoints and so everybody was very on edge and um, weird while I was sit there, sat there sipping like I don't know Sauvignon Blanc in a wine bar <laughs> I've always felt curiously safe when I've been in the West Bank I've always felt safe always felt safe weirdly This, this podcast is coming out as part of our Made in Palestine Christmas series of uh, events that we've produced during December. We hope you've enjoyed it. You can look back on our YouTube channels to check the, all that um, stuff out anytime over the Christmas period and into next year. Um, we just urge you, you know, this Christmas time, whatever you're doing, very few of us, I guess, will be going to traditional large scale carol concerts or anything or carol services in our local churches. But we just encourage you to have a look behind the veneer of the Victorian sort of like image of Christmas that we have. And when we're singing or thinking about words like, oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. We would just encourage you to look at what it's like today in Bethlehem and think about how hope is still being born through poets like Rafif. Hope is still being born in Bethlehem, in Palestine. And um, that's what we wanted this little series of, of events to be about, really, is to celebrate the fact that despite everything, the Palestinians are still teaching us life. So, hi, Rafif. We're really pleased to talk to you. Uh, where are we speaking to you this morning? Uh, I am in Woodgreen in London, where it's incredibly grey this morning. Okay. And how has the summer been for you? How has lockdown been for you? Well, I actually managed to get away to visit family uh, in Greece in the summer, so it's been a bit easier. Um, I, I teach at university, so the last when the lockdown first came, we had to transition to teaching online quite quickly, and that was a bit mad. Um, but then I, I got a bit of a reprieve over the summer, and now dealing with lockdown 2.0. Your, your students are back. You're teaching them in person now, are you? No, it's all online. It's all online. And this is the most I've had to see my own face speaking to itself. <laughs> uh, it's a bit scary and strange. <laughs> That's weird. So is it is it different from performing? You know, as a, as a poet, when you're on stage performing, you don't see your face, do you, at all? I guess it's a completely different experience. 
And you see your entire audience. Um, and this is like precisely why I do spoken word. So quite a lot of times in teaching, we're just recording these sessions and we're sitting in a tiny room by ourselves. But with spoken word, the, the beauty of it, I find, is that audience interaction, hearing them, you know, shout or scream or laugh or cry. And you sort of lose all that. Um, th that's why this period has also been hard in terms of performing and not being able to perform. You've been crowdfunding and you're just about to release or tell us more about the latest album, um, uh, Three Generations. We'd, we'd really like to um, hear more about that. Sure. Um, well, with my impeccable sense of timing, uh, the album actually came out in April and we were about to get on a plane to start touring um, and releasing the album. And then lockdown came and we were sort of unable to go anywhere um, and the albums uh, all prints of them sat there in my cupboard next to my wonderful Palestinian Zatar so they, they smell really good but they're in my cupboard uh, and then we had to think we had to think of new ways of, of how to get it out um, so we decided to go with the crowdfunding um, and ask people to basically pre-order it because all venues are closed. And just two days ago, we were successful with a crowdfunder. Um, so we were able to cover some of our costs. And I'm so excited to get it out there in the world. It's called Three Generations. Um, and it's about generations of Palestinian women um, in my family. But I also collect stories of Palestinian women all around the world. And um, the, this, the album itself is a bit of an ode to the strength of Palestinian women, but it also tells stories of refugees today crossing the Mediterranean and the situation there. I've seen one or two of the songs that you've pre-released on, on YouTube um, and you've worked again with a musician. So it's a, it's a collaboration. It's your, your words with, with music. Uh, it's very beautiful, but it's also quite hard to listen to some of those, those stories. What, what's your hope with, with the album and people who listen to it? What, what do you hope their response might be? I, I think with my work generally, um, you know, when it comes to Palestine and when it comes to the Middle East more generally, um, there's a huge distance between what you hear on the news and what is actually going on on the ground. And what is always missing from my perspective is the reality of people, um, real people who have to live, who have to save their children, who have to earn a living and, and, you know, have food on the table every evening. And you never hear their names, you never hear their stories. It's always this distant place that people get to pontificate about. And what I really hope to do in my work is, is bring those stories to the front um, and show the real struggles of, of people and that it's not actually that distant. Um, and also the the way the levels and ways of complicity where what happens in the Middle East is actually very much a result of policies that are taken in the UK or the US. And we can't distance ourselves in that way by not thinking of humans and how they live. Your tour was um, going to be is it an international tour, a European tour. Where do you tour your work? Um, so we were heading first to the US and Canada. Uh, there was a Palestinian Writers Festival uh, that was very exciting. And it's actually still going on for people interested in Palestinian writing. It's happening on December 2nd to 6th. Um, so that was going to be the launch at that international festival. And then we would go to Canada. Um, we were hoping to get to South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Um, I should say that for the majority of my life, I wasn't able to travel um, because of being a Palestinian refugee, not having the right documentation. So it's still quite strange to be able to tour in this way. And I still pass through airports thinking, am I going to be stopped? Am I going to be let through? 
So the, the ability to tour is still quite new to me. <laughs> could we perhaps dig into that a little bit before coming back to your work, Rafif? Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background as a Palestinian, um, you know, being a refugee, where you've come from, your upbringing, where your, you know, uh, your heritage in a sense, and, and how that plays out into the sort of difficulties that you experience today? I'm a third-generation Palestinian refugee. My grandparents uh, were from uh, Haifa and a village outside of Yaffa, and they were on both sides made refugees in 1948. Um, We were refugees to Lebanon, so that's where the second generation was born, into refugee camps there. Um, And then because of all of the issues of the types of documentation you have as a Palestinian refugee, it's extremely difficult to travel. It's extremely difficult to be able to even get documentation um, to travel, let alone the visas that you need to later travel. So for the majority of uh, my life, I was basically hopping between countries around the Mediterranean. That's why the Mediterranean features so much in my writing as well. It was the only steady place um, I ever had with all of the different exiles that we had to go through. So certainly passports and documents, um, I think it's the other side of Palestinian life that people don't recognize that to be stateless in a world system that is based on states um, means that you cannot move. And and sometimes I see, you know, people with citizenship and passports, like who have a British, you know, passport, just throwing it around. And I think, wow, like that is such a valuable document to people who cannot move and their entire life is structured around having this just piece of paper that people don't even think about. It seems like your experience there has really informed your work that you do around refugees and the ongoing crisis that we're still experiencing now. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I do this work both in my art form, uh, but also as an activist. I've worked with refugees um, from all across many different regions, um, whether back when I lived in Canada or more recently when I moved here Um, and I think it's for me it's really important to link the artwork that I do with activism and and real change that I want to see in the world I don't really see them as these separate spheres Uh, but certainly my experiences from childhood um, and my experience of of being a Palestinian being stateless really informs what I do Um, and I'm I'm really attuned to issues of passports borders uh, refugees um, and displacement in general, but also any type of incarceration and imprisonment. I mean, this idea that we as humans um, can only move because of certain documents really irks me to the core. And when people say no one is illegal, I take that really seriously, that when we're speaking to each other on a human level, how can you say that a human person is illegal? Um, I have a poem called Passport that's about this, if people want to check it out, about the first time I held a passport in my hand and how strange it was to actually cross a border. What is that feeling, that feeling of being stateless? What do you, how does that, I know that that physically means that you're not able to um, move countries easily, but what does that, what does that feeling inside bring up? Wow, we need a therapy session for that one uh, <laughs> because it's quite uh, it's quite a it's it's the deepest form of exile I think one can feel because we're stateless but we have a homeland um, that we are denied and it's a continuous denial of that homeland um, and 
what Palestinians say is that the Nakba, um, that moment uh, of ethnic cleansing where the population was displaced and people like my grandparents were displaced was not just that moment in 1948, it's actually ongoing. Um, and I think sometimes in the West that's not recognized very well. The intergenerational passing of that trauma of displacement continues. And on top of that, um, the illegal occupation of Palestinian lands continues, the horrors of the occupation, um, the wall that is built, the checkpoints, the, the, the illegal settlements, all that is continuing. So it's not like a moment that happened in the past and we can get over it. It's a continuous Nakba that we are living. So I think th that really compounds uh, that feeling of exile that you feel when that, there's that distance and you know you have a homeland, but you can't, you're denied a right to return to it. And everyone who's in it is still living under military occupation. The way that the world organizes itself around states is, I, I guess, in human history is a relatively recent phenomenon in some respects isn't it and it feels like you've got deep questions about whether that's actually a good way to organize the world and i i heard you say a phrase which really struck me about um people refugees people don't cross borders borders cross people um i, I just wonder you know what how would you organize the world or how, how do you think for us to be better humans with one another we could could we organize things differently I think anybody looking at the world today would have to say that we need to organize things differently, not that there's just visions of it, but that it's become a, a necessity. Uh, when we look at issues of climate change, for example, um, that, that that does not respect borders. The planet um, the planet itself is telling us your ideas are silly. <laughs> there are no borders. There's one atmosphere here and you're ruining it. Um, and I think when the planet starts to speak to you in that way, you really have to stop and listen. So for me, certainly we have to organize things differently. And the COVID pandemic, I think, has really laid bare a lot of the inequalities and a lot of the silly ways our society is um, organized and how dysfunctional it is between like the simplicity of what is a core worker or was it what who is an essential worker and how much they get paid um, all the way to borders and states and how they function because um, COVID also showed we are on one planet and that it you know, viruses cross borders. They don't wait for you to decide who's the more powerful country or not. So I think any look outside the window today um, or even in our virtual windows tells us that we need a very different world based on, for me, at least from my perspective, based on equality and justice. And if we could just hold on to those terms of equality and justice, we'll be a lot closer to where we need to be. Some of the artists in this series have said that that change now won't come from politics but obviously you're a you teach politics do you think that it can still be used to change the current world situation that we've got going on it depends what we mean by politics and that is a very politics uh teacher kind of answer <laughs> i apologize <laughs> um but it depends on you know if, if we mean elite politics and and westminster kind of change i don't think that's where it's coming um I actually think things on that level are heading in the in the wrong direction. Um, 
But I do think there are very inspiring social movements. Um, we shouldn't forget that in the middle of a pandemic, we did see the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, sweep across the U.S., but also internationally, people reg recognizing the damage of racism and what it has done to our societies. Um, for me, a huge inspiration is from within the Palestinian people themselves, that despite years and years of occupation uh, and militarism, um, there's still a, a will to live um, and a will to survive. For me, that human level of, of survival is very important. And I think we need to come together and make change happen. Um, sometimes, you know, with art, we think my art will change the world on its own. And I hope it contributes um, but I think there's a more engagement with art and more engaging art that could be put out there, especially in this moment. I think we need it. It's really odd because, um, you know, you said that things like the Black Lives Matter movement, for you that is politics. I've never seen it that way. I've seen politics as being the men in Westminster, the leaders in Westminster, um, that, that kind of traditional way of ruling um, and it's really interesting to say that you, to think that you think of politics as those social movements. Well, I think this is um, part of the part of the point, right? Is that the word politics has been stripped from us, and we think that it's just these people we vote for once every once in a while, and they get to make the political decisions, and we're living this outside world. Um, but everything is political. Every decision we make is a political one. Um, and those those social movements, eventually politics is about understanding power and making change. So if we want to understand how change is made, um, for me, those social movements are really at the heart of how we change things. And if you think about it, um, you know, apartheid didn't end all by itself. It was South African people and people internationally ending apartheid in South Africa. So to me, that is the highest form of politics. Just thinking about South Africa, Rafif, just a moment, you know, um, quite a few people draw comparisons with uh, apartheid in, in former South Africa and this, the, this, the occupation apartheid that we see today in modern-day Israel-Palestine. And I, I'm guessing there are some um, real synergies and solidarities there that the Palestinians would share with um, the ANC and those who struggled within the country. But I'm, I'm reminded that when I was growing up and younger, it was really important to me and my friends that we showed our solidarity there, that we stopped buying certain types of cape fruit, for instance, and then we got involved in that. And that seemed to be a real consensus with people who were progressive around the world. But it seems so difficult. I, what I can't understand is why people today have such a, a problem with talking about a similar type of response to what's happening in Palestine. People seem so, oh, I'm not sure. Oh, no, um, I'm not sure we could go there. I, what, what's going on there? Because for me, shouldn't it just be the same? Why don't we just all stop buying uh, goods from Israel or, uh, or if we want to be more pedantic from the, just the, uh, the settlements? But why do we seem to have such a, a reticence around that, do you think? One of the best advice and, and sort of um, important lessons I learned early on when I started doing um, in the West uh, Palestine solidarity type activism and building the boycotts movement was from a Canadian auto worker uh, in the Auto Workers Union who had been central to the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. 
And we had invited him to sort of learn lessons from how it was done. And he said, it's true that nowadays people look at the last decade and think, oh, there was a consensus and everyone is participating. But they forget that in order to build that anti-apartheid movement, it actually took decades. Um, and it really rung true to me how with movements, we usually think of the end point. And, and today, you know, everybody fancies themselves an anti-apartheid activist. Um, when Theresa May went to South Africa, she was talking about it, although we know what the position of her party was at the time, um, in earlier times. So I think historically, it takes a while to, to build consensus around movements, and it takes a lot of education and a lot of hard work. Um, and if we're speaking about boycotts, particularly in the Palestinian context, it's actually quite a young movement, um, celebrating almost 10 years soon. So I think we've had a lot of successes compared to the age. But you're certainly right that um, there, there's a fear of tackling it. Um, and I, I think the fear comes from a lot of lack of information and misinformation, that somehow if you speak about justice for Palestinians, um, you are being anti-Semitic, which of course you are not because all you're, all you're talking about is that people should not be living under an illegal military occupation. There should not be soldiers with guns that are escorting children to go to their schools and harassing children when they're going to their school. It's quite, it's quite a basic human right to be able to live free of occupation. Um, and I think once we are able to break it down in that way and actually speak about the reality of what's happening in Palestine, it becomes a lot easier for people to make the connections um, and understand that boycotts, divestments, and sanctions are about not just... Uh, the complicity, but holding responsibility for your own actions. Um, like why would anybody want to be investing or buying from an illegal settlement that you know is harassing a community living around you? And why would you want to be defending that even? What kind of responses do you get for your work and your and your opinion and your view around that? Because I know that we have over the years received um, various different types of feedback about our stance. It's it's quite amazing because I do different types of things, and and what poetry does is very different to giving a speech, for example, um, or to doing a PowerPoint presentation or to showing statistics. And I think that's one of the powers of art, I think, in social movements and why when we think of social movements, we remember the posters and the songs because um, those are the moments where we come together as, as collectives and, and think of, of hope, not just what you're against, but also what you're hoping for and the world you're trying to create. So... Um, there's there's two levels um and of of responses to to my poetry and i i always have to remember and stress that i'm a writer writing in exile so my audience is largely palestinians in exile or people who know very little about palestine um and are are hearing it in this way for the first time so on the palestinian side you know that my my best moments are when there's Palestinians from the Nakba generation um, who say, you know, thank you for bringing that story to the stage. No one ever speaks about us. No one ever recognizes that what we went through, our story is hidden. Um, and those moments always make me cry. On the other hand, there's the response of we never thought about it this way in terms of real people or real names. Um, and that's why I, I really care about giving people's real names in my poems and 
you know, giving that real life that is often taken for granted. Um, so that's the other kind of response. Um, and there'll always be the negative responses because I'm talking about a subject that's, you know, people find politically controversial. But I've learned to deal with these my entire life. <laughs> and one thing I was really struck with, is again, thinking about your work, Rafif, right the way back from when at Greenbelt, we first encountered you after your poem, We Teach Life, Sir, um, which obviously went, uh, you know, made a huge impact globally. Um, there's this uh, something you do, I'm sure. I don't know if it's a, a combination of conscious and intuitive, but you, you repeat a line again and again. And I'm struck with, it seems that's one of your key distinctives in your poetry, this this repetition of a line. And as the listener, you're left with that echoing around, echoing around. Um, is is that, again, connected with that remembering? We will look at this and we will remember. There's this repetition thing. What what's What's going on there? So I actually speak my poems before I write them down on paper. And the process takes a really long time because I, I say them in my head for so long and repeat the lines. Um, and then I put it down on paper. So it's it's more like songwriting than poetry writing, really, in that I think of the musicality of it and the lines that, that should echo for people. Um, so some of it is just intuitive. It's a line that is, is right from the heart and I think needs to be repeated for the audience to to s- sit with it. Um, and it, it's it's partly that as well. I feel with the repetition, sometimes people need to sit with it a little bit, um, not to just let the poem come over you all at once very quickly, but to actually um, think through what it, what is being said. So in some sense, sometimes it's intuitive. Other times it's from that process of repeating it so many times that I start to hear what lines are just coming through more strongly. Do you perform your poetry in English or do you ever perform it in Palestinian? Because I haven't been able to go back, I perform mostly in English. Um, and this was very strange because English is my second language. I used to make a lot of mistakes and that's why I actually was very afraid of um performing on stage and I made very bad mistakes that like you know tourist and terrorist which as an Arab you shouldn't be making and I mixed (laughs) my B's and my P's which again can lead to a lot of trouble with words like crab Um, so I was very afraid of performing (laughs) in English and it took took quite some time um, to you know get the the courage up to be able to perform in English but uh, because I'm performing mostly in the West, I want the, you know, the power of spoken word is to be able to communicate with audiences. So I'm mostly performing in English. And you said there that you haven't been able to go back to Palestine. Oh, I've never been able to go. Uh, as, as Palestinian refugees, we're all denied the right of return. Um, so we cannot go back. Um, and my grandparents died in refugee camps thinking they were going to return, but didn't have the ability to return either but uh hopefully inshallah one day every last one of the refugees will return Catherine and i have had the pleasure and the privilege of of visiting uh, the west bank um and we've seen the the keys which uh, refugee families hold on to of the properties which they were driven out from does your family still have keys to um houses which they were driven from yeah absolutely wow 
One thing that really struck me when I was over in Bethlehem is, um, and I guess it's it's that thing you were saying about humanizing the situation or like looking at the the those elements of this situation is not just a political situation and one of the things that really affected me was seeing the wall how that wall made me feel um and I didn't I didn't expect that but there was a real claustrophobia there was a real instinctual feeling of being trapped when I was stood up against that wall and um it's such a it's a thing that I know that would affect me living there and I know a lot of um parents living in Bethlehem they won't they won't show their children the wall. They won't. They would kind of try and keep them away from it, so that they know that it doesn't exist. The wall is a monstrosity. Um, it's uh, it's it's there to limit and scare, and it's there to limit, intimidate um, movement, but also even your imaginary. Um, when you have such a big, horrific concrete right in front of you, day in and day out, and. You know, the fact is that it encroaches on Palestinian land. It steals even more Palestinian land. Um, and it's, it's, it has nothing to do with security. It has to do with more land theft and more intimidation of, of Palestinians. The scarier part is when other world leaders look at that wall and think of it as an example. And I think that's when we really need to worry um, when, you know, people like Donald Trump say we want to build a wall in Mexico. And in Europe, people start talking about building walls. Uh, and, you know, these walls and barriers may be talked about in the Mediterranean, but it's the same. It's the same kind of intimidation and, you know, securing of borders to make sure that humans that are fleeing, you know, economic injustice or even the impact of climate change can't get to safety. Um, and, and for me, it's that that's something I'm really fearful of, that those things that Palestinians live with every day become the prototypes of how the entire world is run. We had the privilege of talking to Natalia Kladia, who's the founder of Belarus Free Theatre recently for this podcast. And she similarly was saying, look, don't think that this stuff just happens in Belarus. If if you're not careful, this this stuff can happen because powerful people can manipulate stuff. They can manipulate media, truth, politics, systems, power, police, such that these things happen. When we visited Palestine, um, the, some of the Palestinians we've had the privilege of meeting have said, this isn't just a situation here that you need to pay attention to. Um, this sort of way of controlling people can be exported. It's an idea and it sort of, quote unquote, works. Um, you know, it's uh, if you've got enough finance and power behind it. And that really scares me. And you, you feel that too, do you, Rafif? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think there's there's levels of complicity that we can really draw out. Um, I mean, there are companies that profit off of building that wall, um, like G4S, for example. We see G4S vans all over London um, and all over this country, and people think of it, oh, it's just another security company or finance company. Um, but some of the checkpoints had G4S equipment, for example, in Palestine. And that's what's dangerous is that, you know, when profits are made and when there's such a drive for profit, um, it doesn't matter on whose expense as long as these companies are, are making their earnings. And they're certainly profiting from a lot of a lot of the destruction that is happening both in Palestine and internationally. And, and this is part of rethinking this entire system that's so profit driven. Um, 
And we see it now like much closer to home when it has come to vaccines and test and trace. When you privatize all these things, making them about profit, you really know that they're no longer about humans. So recently we had the American election. I think, it, I can't remember how long ago, a few weeks now. And Trump was... Um, voted out still there at the moment but hopefully won't be there for too much longer how how was that for you um i think like most of the world we were all glued to our tv screens um wondering how it was going to go down um i, I think you know trump is still kicking and screaming and we'll still see how it goes down i think his administration really unleashed uh, a specific type of ugliness and racism um, and and legitimated it. Um, having said that, I think it's important to think of him as somebody who unleashed this pre-existing racism that was already there, um, lurking right underneath the surface. And, you know, for me, as somebody from the Middle East region, I think we need to tie this type of racism to militarism and how Arabs and Muslims have been constructed and how the wars that take shape in the Middle East are always uh, constructed by dehumanizing and demonizing uh, Palestinians, uh, Arabs and Muslims. So that that connection between racism and militarism is really at the top of my mind. And he was able to unleash it in very, very clear ways. All three of us here on this conversation would feel a, a huge psychic relief in a way that we know that Donald Trump will be out of the White House relatively soon. I mean, we're pained by the fact that it, it was sort of like it seemed incendiary and provocative and deliberate, some of his actions, particularly in, in Israel-Palestine and the Middle East more generally, um, you know, moving the embassy uh, back to Jerusalem, saying that, yeah, the Jerusalem is the undisputed capital of Israel, etc. And then uh, even today, as we speak, it's it's touted that Mike Pompeo, his secretary of state, is going to actually visit an illegal settlement today. I mean, what does that say about international justice or a sense of internationalism? No, and, and the dangerous part is also that even though he's on his way out, how many people still voted for him despite everything um, that he said, like the, 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 the sexism, the xenophobia, the racism, despite all of that. And I think this is like a space we really have to watch because there may be reincarnations of Trump, uh, not the figure, but this movement that he's helped to really unleash is not going away anytime soon. In terms of Palestine, it's it's been horrific. He completely turned international law on its head, um, completely disregarded Palestinian rights. The so-called deal of the century was essentially what a nasty landlord would do uh, to people they want to evict. You you cut off their water, you cut off their supplies, and you force them to leave. And the, the idea of the deal of the century was we're going to starve Palestinians into submission. We're going to cut funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency to stop support for refugees. We're going to cut funding to the Palestinian Authority so you know teachers and employees and healthcare workers can't get paid. And once they're strangulated, economically strangulated in that way, then they will capitulate um, and agree to any deal that didn't give them any form of statehood, self-determination or independence, um, but simply gave them a little bit of autonomy. And, you know, maybe the Palestinian Authority could collect garbage, for example. Um, and that was just unacceptable. That kind of economic strangulation did not work. But you really see the, the workings 
of an international system that's I mean, when you boil it down, it's it's based on bullying. It's based on bullying a population into submission. Um, and the Palestinian people simply refused. Hmm. But this is not to say, sorry, just on that final note, this is not to say that the damage is not really severe. Like when we speak especially about cuts to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, um, I've seen healthcare workers having to decide between giving children hearing aids or giving them casts for broken limbs. Um, that's what it means when you defund organizations that are helping in such a dire situation. Um, if we're speaking about the Gaza Strip, we have a humanitarian disaster taking place with the siege that's ongoing. So when we talk about economic strangulation, we are also, again, speaking about people's daily lives just being able to survive. Um, and in Gaza, it's really getting to the point where the very fabric of society is being affected. Um, suicide rates are, are going up, which was unheard of before. Um, it's it's really aimed at a destruction of the very fabric of society, what we are seeing. And it's it's to the... It's, it's to the credit of the Palestinian people that we've been able to survive it this long, but I don't think people should have any illusions about what this process is. And how has the, um, the situation in Gaza been affected by the pandemic? Yes, it's, it's very scary, actually. We're all watching the numbers in Gaza. Um, there were lockdowns very early on. Uh, the trouble is, uh, through decades of de-development, the actual health system and medical system in Gaza itself is, is near collapse because of lack of equipment going in, lack of any investment, lack of growth. Um, so um, as of a few days ago, there were around 400 cases. Um, and of course, Gaza is extremely densely populated. So there's a real fear about what would happen if COVID really, really takes hold. Um, there's hardly any ICU beds. Um, there's hardly any way to get ICU beds in there because of the siege. So it's a real you know, disaster in the making. And I want to stress here that it's in the making because it's it's avoidable. Um, it's because of the siege that Gaza is in this situation, because of the illegal occupation that Gaza is in this situation. In the face of all this, Palestinians continue to live, to to love, to create. Um, you know, Catherine and I, we we go to this thing called PMX, which is called the Palestine Music Expo in Ramallah. Uh, obviously, not this year. We didn't go, but. The musicianship and the musicality and the culture. And uh, last time I was there, I got to go to the Edward Said uh, Conservatory of Classical Music in Jerusalem. And the Palestinian young teenage, 12, 13 musicians were just, uh, you know, full of life and creativity and passion. And um, how, how, do you, how do you as a people maintain that sort of life and love in the face of what you're faced with i don't i i don't think i could i, I think the art itself is actually a, a way of surviving as well um i remember being very young and reading out when i could barely speak and missing teeth reading out mahmoud darwish poetry about surviving um and i think 
I think that itself being able to to say it and to speak it collectively in the form of poetry and in the form of music is a form of resistance, is a form of standing up and saying we exist and we are human. I think the highest form of showing your humanity is through art. Um, and to despite all still say we are here and we create um, is is really a, a remarkable. I, I agree with you. It's, it's remarkable, but it's also, um, I think, a testament to humanity everywhere, not just for Palestinians. I think when people are squeezed in that way, um, you really see very interesting forms of art um, coming about. And we see this in, in many places around the world. So Greenbelt is, is a, a festival born out of a progressive Christian tradition. And of course, you know, at Christmas time, we all sing the carols about the little town of Bethlehem, etc., etc. And so, I guess partly what we're trying to do at Greenbelt is is okay. That's all well and good. Um, you know, obviously, Christmas is going to be very different this year anyway. But but let's dig beneath the surface. What are the facts on the ground there? Um, I'm not for a minute expecting you to profess some form of Christian faith, but I'm just wondering. Does the does that Christmas story, the story that Christians tell about what happened in Bethlehem all that time ago, d- can that mean anything? Do you think for us today, um, does it does it matter that that happened in Bethlehem? I should say that my uh, father grew up in Nazareth, so you know it's the the man was from our hometown, so we'd know one or two things about it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you know, I think that postcard of the, you know, Mary Jesus story not being able to cross out of Bethlehem really says every because of the wall really says everything about our situation today. Um, and certainly Christmas is, is one of those times of the year where people um, think about Palestine in this very vague way and consider Bethlehem in this very vague way. And I would just urge, urge them um to look at the reality of what has happened, that in order to even get to the Church of the Nativity, you need to cross checkpoints and an apartheid wall. And um, there's there's no religion in the world that would think that that's an acceptable way of treating human beings or being even um, a way of organizing space or society or visits to religious spaces. Um, that's on one level. And on the other level, I would urge people to think through, you know, their personal levels of complicity, but also institutional levels of complicity when it comes to churches, um, church investment portfolios, uh, what trips churches are taking and whether they're actually um, con- there are considerations there around justice for Palestinians or you just ignore the population that's living in the area. Um, don't think you can divorce your faith from the reality that's around it on the ground because faith is political right like everything is political this is my one line to my students in all my classes so it's it's good it's becoming a refrain i would love to take your class it just sounds so interesting and not at all what i thought a a, a class on politics would be like are you hopeful for for the future yeah as long as we're committed to actually making change then i am hopeful um i i would get really worried if we stop having that hope um, and stop organizing and stop trying to change the world. That's when I would really worry. But as long as we're still breathing, making art, um, then I am hopeful. I, I remember when you introduced um, We Teach Life, so you, you, you just honestly communicated the sense of, you know, as Palestinians, you're just tired. 
How do you stop yourself from just having a lie down that lasts forever? In other words, just burning out. I have to be honest and say, like, after we teach life, I felt this burden of having to be upbeat and hopeful constantly and say how great things are and, and show this face of Palestine that's like resilient and strong. Um, and that was in, in 2008 in that war. And then in 2014, um, when, the sec when the other war on Gaza was happening, I got a message from a doctor in a hospital in Gaza saying, can you please say something? Maybe because you speak English, the world will listen. But there's so many body bags in the morgue and there's, we can't bury them anymore. So we need the story to come out. Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional. Um, and in, in that moment, I, I had to collapse and write something different. And I wrote a poem called If My Words, um, because I, I felt like my words aren't stopping the bombs. My, bom my words aren't doing anything. And I'm stuck there miles away watching people die on TV screens. Um, so the, I, I now think it's more honest to capture that as well, uh, not just the strength and the hope, but to also capture how exhausting and tiring it is to be telling the same stories all the time and having your humanity questioned all the time. Um, and in a way, that message from that doctor was very, um, was very freeing because I, it, it gave me permission to say, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> And how can we, as Greenbelt, how can we support your work? Um, the album is out. People can order that. Can you give people a few sort of references and pointers as to where they need to go to plug into your work and support your, your poetry? Yes, thanks so much for that uh, question. Yes, it would be lovely if people could support the work. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're not able to tour right now. Venues are closed. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to be able to get the work out. Um, the album is out on Bandcamp. So if just by looking at my name and Bandcamp, you can download the full album. You can order it on my website and it's on all the social media. So yeah, any support to the album would be really wonderful and much appreciated. And we'd love to bring you back to Greenbelt because I know you haven't been for quite a few years now and it's changed a bit and I think you would love it. And I know that our audience would love hearing from you too. Oh, I'd love to come. I had such a good experience. It was, I mean, in terms of taking a break and recharging, it, it wasn't work. I enjoyed it and I loved meeting people and the space was so lovely and fun and, and kind, which is not always there at festivals. <laughs> so it was very, very nice to be there. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so guys. Much. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Rafi. So I've always wanted to talk to Rafif and get to know her a little bit better. And um, she didn't disappoint. She was fascinating. She talks a lot about the idea of um, how nobody can be illegal and the idea of how we've built our system around different borders is is something that we need to look at and is clearly not working. And also how uh, difficult it is for her to move around, how difficult it is for somebody that doesn't just have a passport or doesn't have a, is stateless. I think she she talks about herself. Yeah, there was tons in there, wasn't there, around all of those those huge issues. And 
It does strike me that, you know, given what we've just lived through this year and the pandemic, you know, the pandemic is a virus is no respecter of borders. Climate change is no respecter of borders. And here we are in the UK, just days away from sort of redefining our borders and sort of stepping away from something the European project, which which brought us into collaboration with countries so that we could work together with them on these big issues and sort of almost pulling up the drawbridge and saying, no, don't worry, we've got this. We can do this on our own. And I'm just I just think that's such an old and unhelpful idea. But, but I don't want to get into the whole Brexit debate. We're talking about <laughs> Rafif and Palestine. But yeah. in, a way, the, in a way, it's sort of like these things are interconnected and in, interrelated. One thing makes you think of another, doesn't it? And at the same time, I think one of the things that has frustrated people the most this summer is the inability to travel, the inability to go on holiday, the inability to go to different countries and like, but there's no connection between those things. For many of us, the, for the first ever time in our lives, we've had our freedom of movement restricted, haven't we? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel very nice. No. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how that all comes back, but it probably will come back at a different price it will probably have some sort of testing element or vaccine element attached to it and in a way you know palestinians living in gaza and the west bank and in refugee camps around the middle east are living in permanent lockdown they don't have the right of movement that we have enjoyed and you know they, this is this is a way of life that they live with checkpoints challenges presenting papers perhaps it's a way of life that in a very very small sense uh, we are experiencing as well. Perhaps that might help us with what Roman was talking to us about on the podcast back in the summer. It might help us be more empathetic to, towards um, the Palestinians. When I went to the Banksy Hotel, there was a brilliant exhibition about there that kind of talks to you about the history of Israel-Palestine. And it talks about how many different types of documentation you need for different things and they were almost absurd like a different documentation for if you're crossing a border with a donkey or if you're crossing a border to go to a hospital or if you're crossing a border with a pregnant woman to go to a hospital yeah it's, it's mind-boggling isn't it all that different paperwork and that's what that's what leads to this sense of sort of almost paralysis that we feel around the sheer complexity of the situation it seems like purposefully quite complicated to me but this is all part of the occupation is part of the control is to make it so administratively complicated that it feels that you're never going to get out of it you know everywhere you turn there's another rule weird because that really came out to me when I was in Palestine you, you know like whenever anybody thinks about the situation in Israel-Palestine or any kind of conflict they think about the violence that people like that is surrounding those conflicts and I never really understood about the psychological stuff that's living in that situation brings like that psychological torture that psychological violence like to, to me that was shocking and in a lot of ways is uh, to me more of an abuse on humanity yeah because whereas whereas violence and sort of outbreaks and skirmishes will only be um you know here and there perhaps on the friday marches or you know every now and again the sort of systems that hold you in place are continuous they're perpetual they are unavoidable they are every day they're every hour and i was struck by something that um 
Rafif, Rafif said to her, she said that it's like the Nakba happened in 1948, but it's a continuous Nakba. It's still that Nakba means catastrophe in Palestinian. Um, it's continuous. It is still happening today. And I was thinking, wow, how do you live with that level of, of trauma? And I feel like we might have had a little taste about what living under a stressful environment could be like because we've done it now in a, in our own way in a, you know not a same way but we have been living with something hanging over us now for months that stress that that uncertainty that restriction Hey, one thing that I really enjoyed you um, bantering a little bit with Rafif about is this word political, because you said, oh, you know, I'd love to come to your politics classes if 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 politics is about basically is about the decisions we make and the way that we organize ourselves and the way that we live. I'm in. But but politics has felt to you like something completely different, hasn't it? Yeah, I never knew that that's what politics was. <laughs> and um yeah, I would love to go to a class of hers. Like, I think she described it now as in our way, uh, our idea of politics is like an elite politics. And um, it's almost like politics has been stripped from us. And I feel, and I feel that. And it's really nice to have that idea of what politics can be turned on its head and you to be reminded about the fact that, no, you have the power. We have the power. The way that Rafif thinks about politics, it made me think that everything that we do at Greenbelt, everyone who we invite is sort of, it's a political act in a way. You know, I really, I, I just, I love that idea of us reclaiming the way that we want to live because in, in so many ways it just feels out of our hands. But what's really interesting in speaking to all of these people is actually we're not powerless. Like all of our guests have kind of taught us that. And reminded us that, which I think we needed to be reminded about. Yeah, I think we did. And Rafif and many of our guests have also said, you know, the, the role of art in these movements and in these protests is absolutely essential. And I think Rafif says that, you know, art helps you go beyond what you stand against and helps you to start to express what you're for, what you want, what you hope for, what you envision. And and I think at one point she said, you know, it's the things you remember from movements and protests are the placards, are the songs, are the poems. Those are the things that last the test of time. And I thought, yeah, you are absolutely right. So art plays such an important part in this um, in this politics. Yeah. Being able, I mean, she talks about that, you know, about how art can help us imagine a future and can give us hope to get to that future. And that's a, that's a theme that has come up in a number of different podcasts. It's really important. It's not just about looking at the here and now, like what is the future that we want to create? Because if we don't have that idea of a future, how do we get there? And art can help us imagine that. Catherine, stop me. Put your hand up if I'm getting too corny and cliched here. But it made me think of the Christmas story as well. And um, that did sound a little bit like a Blue Peter link. Um, but it did. And it made me think that, you know, in the story we read about um, a people being controlled and moved around by another people, uh, the occupying Romans demanding that the local population move around the country and go to register back in the place where they were born. And so just as Mary was about to give birth to Jesus, she's required to move with Joseph all the way from the north of the country, uh, down to the middle of the country to Bethlehem to register because that's where, where Joseph was from. 
And it just struck me there are so many similarities about the way that people are controlled and told to move and told they can't go somewhere, but they must go somewhere else. And I thought, you know, what what's new under the sun? It's just the same. It's weird how a lot of that is taken out of the Christmas story. Like the Christmas story is such a part of like such a mainstream story that we all know around Christmas. It's it's almost like Disneyfied. Like there's so much of that story that is actually left out, but it's a it's kind it's a brutal story. It's a story of people being displaced. Yeah, so much of it is just cultural and assumed and we think we know it and um I was having a conversation with the poet and theologian Padre Gautama and he was talking about the way we, we just overlook and we misread what it actually says in those gospel accounts, in the stories that we have. Layer upon layer gets added to this story and we just assume, oh yeah, that's the way it happened. But did it? <laughs> Since having the privilege of going and visiting Israel-Palestine, I've never been able to read the gospels in the same light. Again, they take on a new... They take on a new meaning and it's a much more political meaning when I read them now. Do you think that Christmas story was intentionally quite political? Well, as Rafif would say, everything is political, Catherine. <laughs> but I think there is something about the fact that, you know, whether or not you believe it or not, why would, you know, God, who presumably, if he's God or she's God, can do anything, why choose to sort of come and be closer to us in that sort of precarious situation? Why don't you just sort of like do something a lot more easy, simple, straightforward, powerful, and once and for all? Why why, why are you born into um, a people who are occupied, who are dominated by a military force, the most powerful military force in the world at the time? And yeah, be born into a situation that very soon after you're born, you're in fear of your life and you have to flee to Egypt for safety. Yeah, why Why would you do that? I think, yeah, I mean, I'm a believer and I have to say that for me, that does speak to me about the fact that God is with us. God is in these situations where, where humanity is denied. That is where God is most. Because, you know, some people, like, their way of maybe not connecting with things that are happening in other countries is just to kind of say, oh, that's things happening over there and that doesn't affect my life. But we've we've seen how ideas can be exported and that idea of the wall in Bethlehem, we've, we've seen that over the last, you know, four years with Trump's administration. Yeah, ideas can be exported, can't they? I think... We've heard that time and time again on this podcast. I think most particularly when we were talking with Natalia from Belarus Free Theatre, she was saying, look, don't just think that these things happen somewhere else. If they can happen, they can happen anywhere. Quite scary. It is scary. It's really important, though, because it's almost, you know, if you let that happen to somebody, that can happen to you. Like if you let those behaviours go, then you're almost letting those behaviours happen to you. Um, looking back on these um, the podcasts that we've been able to make this this year, I've I've 
they've been just wonderful having these chances to connect more deeply with the artists who come to the festival because in the festival environment you know you and i just you know we can say our hellos we can sit down have grab a quick uh cuppa with with some of the artists in the green room or, or whatever but we don't really get the chance to really chat like we have on the podcast and i find it amazing no i can't string a sentence together i mean i can barely <laughs> string a sentence together during the podcast but it gets even worse on the festival side <laughs> it's restored my faith in what we do and it's sort of like made me more determined to keep doing it yeah i mean i think ben kaplan sums it up really lovely like we you know we've we talk about all these very difficult subjects but in ben kaplan's podcast he talks about there's a there's an idea in judaism that the world is perpetually broken and so i think that there's the we don't need to take it as such a depressing thing it's a really great thing to be able to spot these areas that we're broken to have hope but to see the reality and to be able to find out ways to change it as many palestinians that we've met over the years uh, particularly in in bethlehem and ramallah have have said you know we do not have the luxury of despair there's you know that's just a luxury um that's just something you do if you don't care about the world and and your fellow human beings if you do care get on with it do the work <laughs> do the work yeah <laughs> yeah do the work and so you know we're heading towards christmas this is the end of, of series two series two or season two did we ever land that one i don't know <laughs> potato potato yeah tomato potato. tomato is potato. that what <laughs> You say potato, I say potato. <laughs> tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off. Thank you for making the journey with us. And uh, remember that you can listen back and share the episodes and let us know what you think. Um, and, you know, we, we'd love to hear from you ready for the next the next series. Who knows what flavour that will take, Catherine? You do, hopefully. <laughs> I've got an idea, but I'm scared to mention it to you because I think you might fall off your chair. <laughs> um Idea, yeah, I've got a little idea. Um, anyway, thank you to everyone who's helped us make these podcasts, to our wonderful guests, uh, to Rafif today, but to all of our wonderful guests across this autumn and the summer before, to uh, Daisy Ware Jarrett in the office who helps us uh, get the podcast out and does a wonderful job, and to Paul Truman who helps us think about interesting questions to ask. And to Josh and Jake on the Volunteer Talks team who have been brilliant working with us to edit all of these podcast episodes together um they've been doing a fabulous job so we hope you have an amazing christmas uh, in whatever way that you can have it and uh we hope that it sort of reminds you of what's important and just gives you the encouragement and the space that you need to keep loving keep hopeful keep acting for a better world and we'll see you again in 2021 forward to christmas paul well what am i allowed to say catherine <laughs> <laughs> merry christmas <laughs> <laughs> oh my word yeah it does feel a bit like that doesn't it i've got high hopes for 2021 paul
but my bar is definitely lowered this year so <laughs> my high hopes are different <laughs> i gotta i've gotta dig in a bit here catherine i mean your high hopes how connected to knitting are there how are they because we've while we've been recording this podcast there was a there was a ring at your doorbell and you went to the door and you came back and said that's my latest knitting project sorted out i want to know more <laughs> another jumper i bought another jumper before i finished the last jumper so i probably wouldn't have done that now that i know how the last jumper turned out but i mean i hope that my future doesn't involve knitting to be honest i hope that it involves <laughs> socializing <laughs> i hope that it might involve going to the pub and seeing humans and friends and being able to hug people that's what my that's what a brilliant 2021 could be maybe a bit of travel I don't know, Catherine. I think you need to keep your hand in at the knitting because, you know, even if we can get out and about, I can see you leading a workshop in the studio at Greenbelt next year. A knitting workshop led by <laughs> Catherine Goodenough, programme manager. What do you think? Come I'd and find out that. how to knit a third arm into your jumper <laughs> without even trying. 